uh, we are going to talk about uh, the Anabaptists as we're kind of stuck firmly in the middle of the 16th century. Um, the Anabaptists are, at this point in time, sort of the closest analog that we're going to have in the Reformation, the early part of the Reformation. Um, obviously, they were Baptistic just as we were Baptistic. Uh, we're going to find that there's a lot of stuff that, that we don't agree with with them, and we're going to talk about why it is that this movement um, that started pretty scripturally uh, went off the rails very, very quickly. Um, and it, it did happen very, very quickly. So um, where, where we're going to start, though, is kind of talking about Luther and Zwingli again, and specifically a, a unique area for each of those. We talked about um, one of the differences between Luther and Zwingli was their, their sort of approach to what was to happen in worship. And this didn't apply to all of life, but specifically in worship, there was this way of approaching how they were to handle things in the church. Luther was fine with, with doing things within worship services, doing things within church that um, we might want to say weren't uh, biblical so long as they didn't sort of contrast and conflict with what Scripture said. So his was kind of of the opinion, as long as it didn't contradict Scripture, it's probably okay. Um, and there obviously has to be wisdom and prudence in that, but, but he was more open to those types of things. Even if he, he recognized at times that it, it wasn't always prudent to do those things and it wasn't wise to do those things, he was open to it. And that, that stands in stark contrast to somebody like Zwingli, who really had to have something affirmed in the New Testament in order to feel like it was okay to do. Um, so when it came to things like musical instruments in worship, Luther had no problem with them. Um, it didn't contradict scripture. As a matter of fact, he saw, you know, Luther, the monk, knew the Psalms by heart, and so um, they were probably very dear to him, and, and hearing the Psalms call out for the lyre and call out for uh, musical instruments to be played time and time and time again, it would have been very odd for Luther, I think, to, to think that musical instruments shouldn't be used during worship. But for somebody like Zwingli, who, who held very strongly to, if it doesn't exist in the New Testament, it ought not exist in the church, um, Ironically, the New Testament, although it tells us to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, does not tell us to play instruments with those. And so because instruments are left out, Zwingli and, and some followers, uh, even today, uh, don't want musical instruments to be played. So um, those are kind of two different ways of, of working through Scripture and talking about Scripture. Um, and so the, the question is like, we're going to talk about how the Anabaptists handled that and, and one of the ways that um, they were completely on the side of Zwingli, only they thought Zwingli didn't quite go far enough. Um, but it's a good question to pose to us. Um, are either of those approaches right? Or is that sort of a false dichotomy to say that, you know, on, on the positivist side, that it has to be mentioned in the New Testament to do it? Um, on Luther's side, as long as it doesn't contradict Scripture, you can engage in those things. As long as it's, it's healthy, healthy and wise, and it falls kind of under the rubric of, does this actually encourage people in the Lord and stuff? You know, having dog dedications, Luther would not, I, I can affirm with you my full heart that Luther would not be okay with like animals getting dedicated in the church. Um, I would, there's so many things Luther says that I don't like. Uh, I would love to hear his comments on that though. That would, that would be fun. Um, 
I would still probably think, oh, that's a bit far. He's going to say something here in a bit that, that you're like, oh, that's a bit far. Um, it's a bit much, Luther. Uh, but where, where should we fall? How do you think we would handle those things? Or how would you think you should handle those things? And it's, a, it's not an easy answer, but... I think it's a good correction to, to Zwingli. Um, and, and like I said, we're going to point out where the Anabaptists looked at him and kind of said, yeah, but, right, you, you're not, you, if you want to play that game, you're not playing it well enough. Um, so I, I do think that that's a, the first good correction is that the New Testament is not our only guide to how to worship God. Now, we do need to take that with, with some carefulness in, in the hermeneutic that we use, because otherwise we're just reapplying the law in the New Testament. We can't, we can't do that. But I think that might come under the, if it's declined in the New Testament, then it ought to be declined in the church. So sort of a negativist approach is what, what Luther would, would use for something like that. So. He would, they would sing. He wouldn't discount that part, um, and I don't know how he would handle those things, but the way that people most often do is they say that that was a feature of the Old Covenant and a feature of how to worship God through that Old Covenant. Because it's not included in the New Testament, it's just not included. It's not how we worship him now. Um, and so they've each... Groups have different ways of handling the discrepancy. It's not that Zwingli didn't understand that that was there. He knew that that was there. Because it wasn't verbatim stated in the New Testament, he said it's safer if we just, if we just don't. So, yeah. So how do they deal with the transition to the church? They, they saying a cappella, just always a cappella. Yeah, and, and Zwingli was probably one who would say we just don't need to. Uh, so, well, so I, I think that we can, we can backtrack on that a little bit. So Easter, I think he, he probably would have been okay following the tradition of when Easter was, was going to be celebrated, but Easter is quite clearly not commanded to be celebrated, but it is something, like, it's part of the gospel, right? Like, so, so he would have no trouble doing that every week because it's found in the New Testament that this is a major event. And I think that Christmas would be along the same lines. Does that mean that they actually would go through the celebration of Christmas at that traditional church time? I, I don't know that they would set aside anything special for that. No, they wouldn't do Passover. Right, but we don't, I mean... Yeah, we don't do that either, though. Like, we, we celebrate it in the Lord's Supper as a form of the Passover, sort of as the completion of the Passover, but we're not celebrating Passover qua Passover, right? We're not. Yeah, I mean, and we do sort of as a culmination in Jesus, right? So, so but I, I understand what you're getting at. There's a lot of issues that come up, and I'm not a Zwinglian, right? So I, I we... I let Jeff play the drums almost every week. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't let him. I, I want him to. So it's not like he's asking and I'm like, oh, God, I'm caving in. I, I want him to. So 
I'm not, I'm not on the side of Zwingli on this. I just, I think that there's a lot of, and we're going to get to the major incongruity here in just a moment. So um, those aren't, the point is that it's not, these aren't, you can hear Zwingli. What Zwingli's going for is to have the sort of bargain basement thing that you can kind of bank on, right? And that, that is, if it's not found in the New Testament, we ought not do it. And that leaves very little room. It leaves less room for interpretation and for personal desires to kind of creep in. Whereas Luther kind of leaves it open. He's not quite as open as my statement makes him seem, but nevertheless, he's a little bit more open to, to things being moved around. <clears throat> as the Reformation goes on, um, even amongst people in Luther's camp, um, Luther seems to be taking things to a certain extent, but then he seems to be pausing on a number of things. You guys probably didn't need to hear that echoed out, so I figured I'd mute that for a second. Um, some of those things are because theologically he doesn't think that they're appropriate to go forward with. Some of those things are just practically he doesn't think that people are ready for the radicalness of what some of his fellow compatriots want. So people like Karl Stott um, are, are much too progressive for, for Luther. Um, Zwingli uh, kind of is a little, he's, he's clearly more progressive on things like the Lord's Supper than Luther was, and he pushes the, the radical nature of the Supper a little bit further away from something like Mass than, than Luther is careful to do. But there's many out in the wider world that see that both Zwingli's Reformation and kind of the theological center of what Zwingli's doing and Luther, as well as other people, uh, um, Busser in, um, in Strasbourg, you've got uh, Olcampiatus, I can never remember the dude's name, Olcampiatus in Basel, um, I always say it wrong. Um, th those reformers in their own little rights are, are doing kind of the same program, but there's a lot of people who are thinking they're not taking it far enough. Um, this was especially true for, for Zwingli. They thought that he was on top of what was going on, and he was right, but they also thought that he didn't quite carry it out closely enough. And the part that would really kind of catch them was baptism. Okay, so it's weird for Zwingli to be like, when it comes to playing instruments in church, if it's not mentioned in the New Testament, we're not going to do it, even though it is actually mentioned in the Old Testament. And then when it came to baptism, where we never have a child being baptized in the New Testament, we never have, you have to read it into the New Testament, which is why we're Baptists, right? You, we, we believe that you shouldn't read it into the New Testament, but even so, you can read it into some, like, and his household was baptized. You can, you can posit that there were children there who were baptized along with them, um, You've got to read that into, but it never actually conforms to uh, affirming it. It never says, hey, baptize, baptize your children. It doesn't, it doesn't do that. Um, for him then to support baptism seems really way off because we have, we have an Old Testament sort of correlation to that, which is circumcision, but circumcision clearly is not carried forward because that sign and symbol has been changed. And so if it's not affirmed by Zwingli's own standard, he shouldn't keep doing it. And so the Anabaptists and, and many people around Europe, Protestants around Europe, started to look at these things and say, well, maybe this 
particular way of handling baptism has been wrong for, for all these years. We just don't see the evidence of it in the New Testament. Now, it, it was at first sort of widespread throughout Europe that pockets of people were coming to these conclusions, but it really started to get centered um, because Vingley was, next to Luther, the most important first-generation reformer. Uh, his, his theology lent itself to this better than anything else, so it was really in Zurich that the Anabaptists kind of got their start. Um, part of this, then, is the connection between the state and the church, and this is something that, the, the, again, the Anabaptists saw very clearly that Luther was more progressive on than Zwingli, as a matter of fact, so uh, Zwingli thought that the church and the state should be combined. So Calvin is going to follow in his steps when he gets to Geneva, and that is that, you know, we talked about Zwingli and the city government last time. The city government was making decisions both for ecclesiological matters and for civil matters, um, and he would often appeal to them to make those decisions. This is exactly what's going to happen for Calvin in Geneva, uh, that the, those who work on the city government, the city and the state are going to work hand in hand Luther actually saw things differently. He saw that there should be two different kingdoms and two different spheres of authority. Um, he, this was called his two-kingdom theology, which is similar but not the same exactly to Augustine's City of God and City of Man, but that there was a, a government for civic affairs and that they ought to handle the political and civic affairs of the day, and that there is also then the church which handles the spiritual affairs, um, which is nice in theory, Right? And even as Baptists today, we know that those two things, especially in a democracy, are very hard to keep completely separated. We can't, we're going to talk about that in the sermon today. We can't just separate out those things and, and put them in neat boxes apart from one another. Um, it's more difficult when the church and the state have long been in tension with one another and fighting over the same realms. So, you know, the fact that Rome has the ability to call forth soldiers and the fact that Rome has their own territory and that Rome has their own political laws and their own political ambitions. The popes have been known for that for a long time. Um, the, the idea that you can actually engage these two separate kingdoms in Luther's viewpoint just didn't work. Eventually, important princes came to Luther's side and they wanted, they, they didn't know any better. They thought that their viewpoint when it came to ecclesiological matters would be important, just as it was in, in civic matters. And Luther wasn't quite firm enough on his doctrine to say no to that. And so all over, uh, it seemed like these two things were going to keep going together. And the Anabaptists kind of came along and said, if baptism is not meant for children, then that by itself is going to divorce the way the church, at least in a much much more real sense, um, that will divorce the church from the state. So Luther was able to have this two-kingdom theology that kind of would make it work. But when you get to somebody like Zwingli and Calvin, it's impossible. Now, we can do it today in America, and this, this always rings false to me when people claim, when Baptists say that they're Reformed and Reformed people get all huffy with us because, like, you don't believe what Calvin says, I'm going to be like, neither do you. So settle down. Like, you don't think that the United States should be a theocratic institution, um, and the reason why you don't is because of us Baptists, not because of John Calvin. So, zip it. So, um, I say it nicely, though. Uh, so, the reason why is because if you're born a citizen, and that automatically makes you a member of the church, when the church and the, the state are the same, right? These are, these are Christian nations, just like in England. 
If you were born in England, you were born, at least you were, I don't know how things stand today, you were born as a, as a person in the Anglican church because you belong to England and the queen or the king is the head of the church. And so if you can't separate out church and state, the church and the state are basically melded together. But Baptists came along and said, well, we're not baptizing infants anymore. We're baptizing adults. And therefore, those two things are now separated. Well, the Anabaptists were going to get in trouble because of that. And so um, what they, 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 they were using Scripture to kind of commend a whole bunch of different theology together, um, and part of that was kind of the following issue. So as far as their theology goes, they were quite clearly Baptistic, which means they, they believed in believer's baptism um, because they saw faith as integrally related to baptism, which again is not quite fair to Luther and Zwingli and Calvin, uh, because they saw faith as, as important in baptism as well. Um, it's just it's hard to find where that faith is coming from. It's the faith of the parents or it's the future faith of the children or something like that. It's, it's all very strange and kind of backwards. Um, <clears throat> Baptists have a better way of viewing that and saying faith is integral to baptism because faith precedes baptism. Okay, so we're creedal Baptistic, so were they. Um, what this also then did is make them very literalistic with how they read the New Testament. Um, because Zwingli's positivism, which said if it's not written in the New Testament, what he was looking for was this sort of like bedrock for how we are to interpret things. Well, if that's really the key goal is to find out exactly what must be true at all times, it's going to lend itself to less symbolic and figurative ways of reading and try to figure out exactly what the Lord is calling us to do. So when it comes to like the Sermon on the Mount, that is to be taken literally. You, you are to actually do the things written in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just a figurative way of speaking. So when it came to um, pacifism, pacifism uh, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, you are to be peacemakers, where you'll be called sons of God, blessed are the peacemakers. Um, that when someone asks you to go a mile, you are to go two. If they ask for your cloak, you're to give them your tunic as well. Um, they, they said, this is not just euphemisms for how we're supposed to live, but we are to live completely at peace with people. And that complete peace meant no war. Uh, yeah, they would be fairly literalistic. Now, at times, they wouldn't go quite that far, right? So they weren't, they weren't silly about it but they were much more literalistic than we might be when it came to it. Because again, what we're going to end up with is Menno Simmons and him saying, not only is pacifism the way to go, but you can't take oaths because of what's written in the Sermon on the Mount. You, you can't do that. Well, we, we realize that other places in the New Testament at least come real close to denying that. And, um, and there doesn't seem to be a, a, an issue with that in other places, so we, we, we wouldn't interpret it quite as literalistically, but they get, they get closer and closer to that. Um, it's unlikely that they would have looked at that verse and said precisely those things. Um, there, there are exceptions to that, but the, they certainly are trying to take it much more literalistically than, than we would, um, which again leads to pacifism. Um, it also leads to egalitarianism, um, so they, they were of the, the position that men and women within the church were completely and utterly equal and um, that there weren't distinctions. Uh, this was really radical in the day uh, because this idea of nobility is going to, even though the, the gospel is being preached, this idea of nobility and, and of not 
of people being equal sort of in value before the Lord, but not equal socially, is going to cling on for a really long time. Like, you, you find this almost as the, it's not the center, but it influences almost everything that Jonathan Edwards is going to say, um, you know, in, in almost 200 years from the time in which uh, the Anabaptists were preaching this. So Edwards believes that there's, a, there's quite a hierarchy in, in the world. One of the reasons why he ought to be listened to as pastor was because he came from a family of pastors. He's, he was almost of New England nobility, um, which is one of the things that made him um, act and speak the way he did with such assurance of his correctness. Um, but that wasn't how the Anabaptists treated everything. Everybody was equal. Everybody was, was on the same page. And so they were very egalitarian. Because of the, the separation for church and state, they were also incredibly tolerant. Okay, So for them... It, it doesn't matter that Carl next door is Catholic because they're not a civic society. They're already breaking away from society in order to be a church of redeemed people who are set aside from the, the wicked of the world. And so if he owns a, a market or something, they, they probably are not going to go shopping at his market. They're probably not going to interact with him too terribly much. But they don't think that it's wrong for for the Catholic person to live next to them, okay? Um, which, obviously, if you, you listen to how Protestants and Catholics are dealing with stuff, if you think that the, the state is tied in with the church, then they do have problems with it. And this was clear for both Catholics and Protestants, and all those German provinces and the, and the Swiss cantons, um, they, they were either Protestant or they were Catholic, and, and you were not allowed to be there outside of that. This is going to happen all the way through the English Reformation as well. You're going to get Mary, Queen of Scots, Bloody Mary. She's going to butcher people. Protestants are going to get back control. They're going to butcher people. All of this is because there, there wasn't toleration. But there is. When you're separating out church and state, you get this sort of tolerant uh, act, um, idea. And then they were almost perfectionistic as well. They thought that uh, it was almost a binary idea. Um, you were either righteous or you were unrighteous, and there wasn't too much in between. So uh, either you did the things, and you also get, you're moving much closer toward, I need to be careful with this because I don't mean it that they didn't believe the gospel, but you're getting much closer towards almost a Pelagian free will type of idea where you can do it, okay? You, you, you hear the commands of the Lord, you can do the commands of the Lord. Now, they would say, regenerated by the Holy Spirit in the whole bit, but they would say, you can do it. And so you're either righteous or you're unrighteous. If you want to be unrighteous, go out and be in the world. But there's this, this sort of the, the idea that we have that our hearts are continually being worked on by the Lord and we're, we're being remade in his image slowly over time through sanctification, um, it's more like a light switch for them. Either you're, you're repentant and you're, you're righteous before the Lord and, and all the wor- ways the word righteous implies or you're not. And, uh, and so they were nearly perfectionistic. Um, they were called Anabaptists for two reasons. Um, <laughs> First was, it was pejorative. Uh, It meant that um, it was kind of a way for them to be put down. And the second was to distort their theology because everyone hated them. Um, So Anabaptist simply means rebaptizers, which again distorts their theology because they didn't think that they were rebaptizing people. They thought that they were just baptizing people, which we talk about all the time. People sometimes um, say, well, I need to be baptized again. And we will, we'll correct them. We'll say, no, 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 you need to actually be baptized. But okay, we we get what you're saying, right? We're not fussy about it. Um, but it was a way to distort what they, they actually believed. Um, the first person to be baptized 
uh, again, as an adult that we know of was George Blaurock, who was a former priest. Um, in January of 1525, he was baptized in the fountain in Zurich by a man named Conrad Grable, um, which shows you how dedicated they were. It couldn't be put off till spring. So in, in the fountain it was. Um, he wasn't as manly as you might suggest, might think he, it was just a sprinkling, um, so it wasn't full immersion yet. Um, they would get around to that probably in the spring, um, but eventually they would get around to it uh, and doing full immersion. They, they didn't care so much about the mode. It was enough that they were actually going about rebaptizing people. This was a major, major thing uh, for them to do. Um, and as their movement spread, they were pretty much hated everywhere. The Catholics obviously hated them because they were Protestant, but the rest of the Protestant nations hated them as well. And there was a good reason for this. Um, their pacifism did not go well in Eastern Germany when the Turks were knocking at the door, and it didn't go well in parts of Switzerland and Southern Germany where they were kind of butting up against Catholic territories, right? So if you're butting up against a Catholic territory, the Catholics are oftentimes, there's all these skirmishes, all these wars happening kind of on a continual basis as the map continues to change and move around, and, and for people to then stand up and say, well, Christians just shouldn't ever go to war. Well, when the Turks are threatening you from the east and the Catholics are threatening you from the south and, and even in your midst, um, even if you're right, that's not a, a, gonna be a very popular decision. And so um, they were viewed as seditious as well. So they were viewed as undermining the state, obviously um, not engaging in war type activities was a big problem. But then also just the uniqueness of separating out the church from the state um, undermined the way that almost everybody thought of politics in that day and thought of, of how people were to handle themselves. And so um, they were just seen as, as being so radical to be almost anarchical. Um, and indeed, some of them turned into that. Some of them said, in the end, um, the church, those in the church have no reason to bow down to the authority of the state. We don't need to listen to you guys at all. Um, and so they, they did eventually show that, you know, the sedition charge wasn't completely off the, the mark. Um, so because of that, no matter where they were, they were hunted down and killed. Um, they were slaughtered. Sometimes it was through the irony of having a rock tied to them and then thrown in the water so that they would drown as a way of baptizing them finally and fully one last time. Um, other times it was just the routine sort of burning them at the stake and boring stuff like that. Um, these These... These Anabaptists, the numbers of martyrs of Anabaptists in the 10, 15 to 20 years from 1525 on um, is, by many counts, higher than all of the martyrs that happened before Constantine came to power in Christendom, okay? So again, you have this like, who's the world? So the Roman Empire didn't kill off as many Christians as Protestants and Catholics did in the 16th century. And that's just Anabaptists. That's not talking about Catholic deaths at the hands of Protestants and Protestant deaths at the hands of Catholics. Um, so they were, they were put to death quite a while um, by a number of different means. And, uh, and it was kind of brutal for them. Um, this had a profound effect on the movement because the persecution came swift and it came quickly. Um, what it ended up doing was taking away a lot of its good thinkers. So a lot of the early um, movement was done by people who were scholars. Um, but as they were um, martyred off, 
what you ended up with was a movement that had a heart but not really a head. And they were led more by passion than by scholarly attention and devotion to what the scriptures had to say. Um, one of the major issues that happened pretty early on in this movement was the German peasant uprising. Um, in the middle part of the 1520s, um, German peasants, who you remember Luther had quite a heart for, this is the whole reason why he stood up for the indulgences, they turned around and said, hey, all the nobles have been oppressing us. We're not getting our fair shake and our fair due. Um, they, they're just using us and they are, they are beating us down and, and we need reforms, we need changes. And they looked to Luther and they said, listen, if you're going to stand up to the nobility in the church, it seems like you would be the kind of man who would stand up to the nobility in, in the German princes and things like that. And for a while, Luther tried to find this middle ground. He said, listen, to the nobles, he said, these poor people have, have legitimate complaints that you ought to listen to and you ought to, to work hard to deal with. To the, the peasants, though, he said, there's still an authority over you and you, you need to listen to them. At some point in time, the peasants said, we, we've just had enough. And they, they revolted against the German nobility. At that time, once they revolted, Luther said, um, you know, the, the end of peace is more important than your oppression. And he wrote uh, the, the handbook, or he penned, I don't know if it was a handbook or how long it was, but against the robbing, murderous hordes of peasants. Um, so he, he really leaves you hanging as to what he's, he's going to side with there. Um, against the robbing, murderous hordes of peasants. Uh, it sounds like a fake title, but it's not. And, um, and he said that they need to be put down. This is one of the things that he writes in there. This is one of the reasons why I really like, can never like Martin Luther as much as I want to like him, because he writes stuff like this. The peasants must be sliced, choked, stabbed, secretly and publicly by those who can, like one must kill a rabid dog. Okay? So at least you always know how he feels, but how he feels is sometimes really stupid and horrible, and he needs to be curtailed, but at this point in time, he's Martin Luther, no one's going to curtail him. So uh, the German nobility um, does rabidly put them down, and to the tune of 100,000 or so peasants, um, they, they end up taking the live of a uh, really horrible event. One of those men was an Anabaptist pastor by the name of um, Munzer. Um, he's, he's got a very interesting life. We can't really talk about him. I'm already going too long, so we're going to move on. Um, but one of the facets that you're going to start to get is that the Anabaptist movement, because the leaders were, were killed off so quickly, um, because, and because it's, it's sort of a, a, a movement among now the lower lower, more uneducated people, it begins to have um, a whole bunch of fanaticism that, that is moving with it. So there's not a lot of, of really well-thought-out, detailed theology. It's more just like, let's react to things. Um, Melchior Hoffman was one of those. Um, he thought that the end times was close. That's also a part of this movement now, is after the initial surge of Anabaptists are killed off. Um, the, the coming of the end is part and parcel of what they believed. And so Hoffman thought that the end times were going to be close. And so um, because he was in Strasbourg, um, would you know that that is where the New Jerusalem was actually going to come down, was in Strasbourg, Germany. It just so happened that Hoffman was there. How fortunate. So he predicted that this was going to happen. People flocked to Strasbourg. Um, he predicted that it was going to come down. Um, he 
started then to reject pacifism, as you're going to also find out that as these fanatics got their way and they started getting more people to follow them, it was more important to start taking up arms. And it was important to do that because the wicked need to be taken out so that the, the, the children of God might live. Um, eventually, the New Jerusalem never came down in Strasbourg and Hoffman was imprisoned. Um, but then somebody else, uh, John Mathis and John Lydon, take up the same sort of tact in um, Munster. And they also predicted that the New Jerusalem was heading there. Um, so the bishop, who they, they basically ran over Munster, they took over control of the city, they kicked out the Catholics, they kicked out the bishop. The bishop gets an army and he lays siege to Munster. So um, every once in a while, raiders will come out of the men and they will, they will fight and skirmish with the Catholics a little bit and go back in. This leads to a couple of things. One, severe famine in the city, and two, a loss of a lot of... Um, lives of men. The famine seems to lead toward people having these ecstatic visions of the end and people just doing crazy and weird things. Uh, the loss of the men uh, led um, after uh, uh, Mathis dies, leads Leiden to, uh, to say, oh, polygamy's back in because all the men have died and so there's so many women left alive inside the city wall, so now polygamy's back in. And so this is going on for a while, and pretty soon people inside of Munster look around and they're like, this is ridiculous. This, is, this, is, this can't go on anymore. And so they literally just open up the gates for the Catholics to come in. And the Catholics seize Leiden, and um, they put him in a cell. You can actually go, what I understand, you can go to Munster today, and you can find the cell where they say the king of the New Jerusalem, they called him the king of the New Jerusalem, which again, tells you that somebody's not reading, yeah, that's the face you ought to make, that somebody's not reading their New Testament well. Like, isn't that Jesus? But apparently, no, it was John Lydon. And so there's, there's a, you can still see the cages where the Catholics, before they tortured and executed him, kept John Lydon and his two lieutenants um, there in the, in the basement of a cathedral. Um, eventually, um, that part of the movement stops. The fanaticism kind of goes away. It's, it's dealt with, things die down. But there, there is this sort of stream that, that continues. Menno Simmons um, happens to be the guy who kind of picks up the, the pieces of this. Um, he did go through persecution, but he lived through it. Um, he, he never faced you know, drowning or, the, um, or burning or anything like that, but he was able to sort of evade death um, and he, he founded kind of a community. These people were oftentimes, they called themselves from the very beginning um, when Blaurock and Grable were there. Uh, they called themselves brethren. This is what Menno Simmons picked up on as well. This is where um, Mennonites come from. Um, he was a priest in the Catholic Church who decided that it would be wise to start to look at the nature of baptism when he watched an Anabaptist be killed. So he watched... Um, one of these Anabaptist martyrs, and he said, oh, okay, well, I need, to, I need to figure out what baptism ought to be by the New Testament, and, and he became very quickly sort of this Anabaptist, Baptistic guy. Um, again, he, he said very clearly, we are to be pacifists. Uh, we are to never take oaths. You are to follow the government so long as it doesn't contradict something in the, in the Bible, but you are not to fight for them. So this, this idea of conscientious, you know, uh, backing out of war, conscientious observers were um, started kind of by Menno Simmons when he said, hey, we're just not going to engage in that, that stuff. Um, they also practice foot washing, which is fun because I said that that under Luther's idea of what an ordinance is could very well be an ordinance, and they, they did that as well. Um, they were still found to be subversive, though, because they refused to 
be enlisted um, and conscripted for war. They just simply refused to go. Uh, they wouldn't take oaths in court, um, and so people had a huge issue with that. Um, so they were kind of scattered. They, a lot of them went to Russia. Um, a lot of them went to the New World, and then they found not only places in North America and in Russia, but also in South America, you find a lot of these Mennonites um, and their communities. Um, it's sort of tough to to wrap your head around what's actually happening with the Anabaptists. The one thing that we, we do need to say is that there are parts of their belief and their thought which connect them pretty tightly with what we believe. Obviously, the Baptistic thought, the separation of church and state, toleration, things like that, those are really, really well connected. But to be honest, the, the initial Anabaptist movement was like putting water into hot oil, right? It... it it was the wrong time and the wrong place. So as soon as it hit that oil, it just exploded. And they didn't have time with, with people who had their head in the scriptures to truly sit down and think through how to piece together theology in the right way. And so after the initial scholars kind of got their heads cut off, there wasn't anything to really, really think through systematically in a way that would make their theology last. And that's kind of why it scatters and goes everywhere. And people drop pacifism when it's practically um, not viable for them. And why they, they turn towards polygamy and they have these visions and ecstatic things at the end. It's because they're not actually centered in the New Testament. And there was no way for them really to be. So it's going to take years before the general Baptists uh, in, in England start to create sort of a Baptist theology that, that it will be able to stand the test of time because the Anabaptists just, they weren't, they weren't, they weren't going to do it. Um, and so while there is sort of a connection between Anabaptist thinking and our thinking, um, the, two, the two should not be like linearly connected. And, and say, well, that is where we've come from as far as the Reformation goes. Those are our fathers of the Reformation. Eh, not quite. It, it's not quite there. There's parts of it that are there, but, but not all of it comports directly over to what we believe. And so um, it's a kind of a blip, but it's a sad blip uh, at the same time. And especially it gives you a really good taste of the kinds of things that were going on in the 16th century um, the Reformation was really, really excellent in a number of different ways. Um, but again, when you, when you hear of people who are Anabaptists being killed in the numbers that they were, um, it, it reminds you that the Reformers did not reform immediately. Like, it, it took the Spirit time to work through these things. And it still is, right? So you're going to move from there to slavery in America, right? To the butchery of the English Reformation, to slavery in America, to the issues that we had in the South and America, like we're, to sexual abuse and things like that. So we're still like working out what the Reformation ought to be. Um, and that's never going to be something that ends. We're always going to be doing these things. So um, the, the Anabaptists were interesting, um, not quite our forefathers, but um, certainly an important part of the Reformation. So uh, any, any questions before we close off in prayer? Mm -hmm. Uh, do not swear in the, in the Lord's Supper. Or, uh, sorry, in the um, Sermon on the Mount. So you're not to swear by Jerusalem, by, by you're not. not like taking an oath, like, 
you're not you're not to say you're not to say anything like that you promise you you're gonna do something or things like that. You just do it, right? Yeah, yeah. You can't you can't do any of that. Yeah. Right. You can't you can't be you can't be bound. Um. Yeah, that's that's the main thing of it, and and other places where Jesus does talk about you know don't swear on Jerusalem for it's the you know, the city of God and things like that. So there's this, um, which I believe is in the Sermon on the Mount, but my brain's a little befuddled this morning. So, um, but yeah, the, let your yes be yes and your no be no is, is the main the main thing there, where they, they were just supposed to live their lives by that and not take on other oaths, which, which would include even Mennonites today, when they're brought in before a court, they refuse to put their hand on the Bible and swear, you know, they won't say, I, they, they will just say, Do you, will you tell the truth? And they'll say yes. And they're given that, that opportunity because they're Mennonites. Yeah. yeah. Mark. Are you quite sure the connection between baptism It's not necessary today. So today there's plenty of Presbyterians and Anglicans and Methodists who can baptize children and not have them be part of the state. Okay, so and what I mean by that is if the church and the state are already separated, then infant baptism doesn't play into the, the, the binding of church and state together. However, in those days, because the church and the state, the, the practical way in which church and state worked together was very, very closely knit. To have children born into a state is also to have them born into the church of that state. And so if you were going to have infant baptism, you were going to bind church and state by the same act of birthing people. Like that, that child is, is belonging to both. No one cannot belong to both, right? So you can have people who, who want to separate from the church, but the state isn't going to accept them as part of like the functioning of society and stuff like that. So um, that sort of very clear separation um, truly only happens... Uh, through Baptistic theology. You can get there through Reformed theology, but it's clear that the first, the first generations of Reformers didn't do that. They, they weren't there. And again, you get this in Calvin. So Calvin's a second-generation Reformer. Um, he, he very clearly doesn't see the separation of church and state as a thing. He, he thinks that the state ought to... Society and the church are tied together very closely, I guess is the way to put it. To have a regenerate church is to have a regenerate society and we just don't see that the church can live in exile yeah. Yeah. good question any others i'm just gonna wait it out okay john calvin next week lord willing um, unless something more important comes up than calvin um but uh, we'll probably talk about Johnny. Um, I'm just going to start reading from the Institutes, so come on Thursday, and we'll finish by Sunday. Uh, no, we won't do that. I'm going to read through them in Latin, the first edition. It'll be so much fun. Um, I, I couldn't do that. I don't read Latin, so it'll be, I'll just make up words, and you guys will sit there and shake your heads, yes, and who knows what I'm saying. Um, John Calvin next week, and then we will continue our push up through modern day. So let's pray. Uh, Father, we are grateful um, to be able to understand what um, the Anabaptists thought and to remember um, how faithful they were to your word at times. We know that they went 
right, a little bit far, and a number of things that they said and believed, and probably some of them weren't truly regenerate. Um, but we, we always are amazed and ought to be grateful for those who, in reading your word and, and coming to a conclusion, are willing to stand by it, uh, even at the threat of their life. Um, we're also reminded, Father, that not only do we have sort of a, a history that goes back to those Anabaptists who would gratefully give their lives for what they thought to be true, um, but we also trace our heritage back to the Protestants uh, who were willing to kill them and, and butcher them for their beliefs, um, that we might always be reminded of our need to continually watch over ourselves. For as sure as those, those Protestants thought they were in the right um, we think that we are in the right all the time about things. And although we are not putting people to death today, Father, let's, let us always be very, um, let us be reminded and let your spirit move in us to show us where we are wrong, especially where we think that we are right. Um, give us eyes to see and ears to hear these things by the grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.